Well, that goes to show you that kids ask very interesting questions. <laughs> um, and that's a good thing, I think. I think it's good for our kids to show that they're interested by asking those questions. Um, now I'm going to have to research tomorrow, aren't I? <laughs> I guess so. All right. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. If you do not have your Bibles, um, it will be behind me on the screen. And this week, we're going to finish up chapter 17. And if we remember, um, basically we're going through the covenant. God is reaffirming and establishing and ratifying the covenant that he made with Abraham um, previously in chapter 15. And now we're seeing the whole scope of that covenant, though. What it is that God is calling of Abraham, what God is promising to Abraham. Um, But it goes much further than that, as we're about to see. So, verses 15 through 17. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? So verse 15 of this pivotal chapter in Genesis turns the attention over to Sarai. Um, This is the fourth speech out of five given to Abraham from God. Immediately we are told that Sarai's name will be changed just as Abraham's was. Instead of being Sarai, she would now be called Sarah. When it comes to the purpose of this, we're not sure. In fact, the name for both Sarai and Sarah is the exact same. Um, That is princess. Regardless of the reasoning behind it, though, it change is made by God. Now, this princess is also given part of the covenant in that she will be blessed. First and foremost, she will be blessed with a son. The fact that she has been barren throughout her life for 90 years implies this must be a miraculous work of God in her life. Thus, God first blessing her specifically with a son. Yet it is not only with a son that she will be blessed, but like Abraham, she will be blessed with a progeny of many nations, kings of people. This reflects what was spoken to Abraham when his own name was changed, and how he too will be the father of nations and kings and people. Then in an unexpected twist, we see Abraham's response. He fell on his face and laughed. Now, some have commented it is possible that his response represents Abraham literally falling down laughing at the prospect of his wife being able to bear a child because of just crazy. It's crazy to think about. Yet it may also be derived from the joy and happiness of such an incredible thought that God has promised his wife to have a child. We're not sure. Um, The inward thoughts, though, of Abraham can be interpreted either way, either as laughter over the absurdity or laughter over the overwhelming joy. As we see, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Now, the ESV does gloss it a bit, is it is really one sentence which just runs into each other, um, likely to show us Abraham's surprise, awe, um, over what God is telling him, the shock of it all. Now, a final thought about this response from Abraham is this. When the text says, Abraham fell on his face and laughed, it could be read, um, Abraham fell on his face and Isaac. Isaac literally means to laugh. Hence the irony over Abraham's actions, as we'll see. So, verses 18 through 21. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. 
I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So the fifth speech from God begins actually with Abraham asking about Ishmael. Ishmael is his first son through Hagar, as we learn in chapter 16. Whether Abraham is doubting God's provision through Sarah, or if he simply has concerns about his first son, or is assuming Ishmael is still the heir, is unknown. Regardless, Abraham requests that Ishmael would live before God, in this sense, be blessed with the covenant blessing. God, however, has different plans than the ones which Abraham is thinking. Indeed, it is not Ishmael who, will, who came from Hagar who will be the covenantal child. Instead, it will certainly be the child which is going to be born through Sarah. Now, the name of the child is affirmed. It shall be Isaac. Whether this is purposefully done because God knows Abraham's response and possible doubt seems probable. It, it is with Isaac, however, that this covenant will begin. And be given, um, be given. That is, thus Ishmael is excluded from the covenant which is made between God and Abraham and God and Isaac. Isaac shall be the one who receives the everlasting covenant and his offspring after him. Now, those who might think Ishmael is getting a raw end of the deal are mistaken. While it is true that Isaac is the promised heir and the one who receives the covenants and the covenantal blessing, Ishmael, in his own right, is blessed by God as well. God has heard Abraham concerning Ishmael, which is a part of a play on words with Ishmael's name, which means God has heard. In hearing Abraham, God answers his prayers that Ishmael will also be blessed, which was a promise he actually gave to Hagar as well. Ishmael, in particular, receives the blessing of progeny. He will have many children and will become a great nation in his own right. Indeed, 12 princes do come from Ishmael, that is, 12 tribal leaders. Interestingly enough, this same number of leaders comes from Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Still, at this point, Ishmael is clearly blessed by God. Though it should be noticed, it does not imply that God will be Ishmael's descendants, um, God the way he is for Abraham and Isaac. While this is true of Ishmael, it ultimately reflects back onto Isaac. For as blessed as Ishmael is and will be, Isaac is the one who receives all the covenantal blessings which are given to Abraham. The most important of which is that God will be Isaac's and his people's God. And Isaac and his people will be God's people. God ends the final speech by alleviating the doubt. After 25 years of waiting, Isaac will be born within a year's time. uh, Now we get to verses 22 through 27. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So the final scene begins with God's dramatic leave. Usually when God finishes speaking, that's the end. Here, however, we are specifically told how God finished talking and then went up and away from Abraham. As Wenham points out, it's almost solemn what occurs with God's departure. Verse 23 then describes what occurs after the fact. 
Whenever God gives a promise, blessing, covenant, or command in Genesis, it is usually followed through by those whom he is talking to. Noah is the best example of this, as when God concluded giving his instructions to Noah, Noah simply obeyed. Now we find Abraham not waste any time either. He, too, immediately takes all the male members of his house and circumcises them. Abraham follows the directive perfectly. There is no male within the house who is not circumcised. We notice how the text repeats itself in verses 23 through 27. We are told repeatedly who was circumcised, that it is every male in the house. Likewise, we learn the age of Abraham when he is circumcised, 99, and Ishmael, which is 13. Now, one last feature of these final verses rests in the phrase, that very day. That this phrase is repeated shows its significance. As often is the case, such a repeated saying is meant for emphasis. Likewise, the phrase itself reflects another event, Noah and the flood. Just as it started to rain that very day when Noah entered into the ark. So on this very day, Abraham did as God said. Thus, the text itself reminds us of the significance of this event. A world event has occurred in Genesis 17, one that will change the world forever. So the main point of these verses are to finish solidifying the covenant. At this point in his life, Abraham likely thought that the covenant promise was going to be fulfilled through Ishmael. As it turns out, despite his and Sarah's old age, God is going to fulfill the promise of descendants not through Ishmael, but through the blessing given to Sarah and ultimately the son given to her, Isaac. Those belonging to Abraham and Isaac will be blessed with the covenant given to God, an eternal covenant in which God will be theirs and they will belong to God. Likewise, we find the fate of Ishmael, which is blessing of progeny, as well as Abraham's response to what God has told him, which is obedience. Um, On that day reminds us of the significance of the event, whereby a world event occurs in the obedience of Abraham to God and to God's covenant with Abraham. All right, so a few application points um, from this. The first, obedience. Something which we have found thus far in Genesis is that faithfulness goes hand in hand with obedience. Whether it is Noah, Abraham, What we see are individuals who are chosen by God, who are declared righteous for their faith, their belief in God, and when given a command by God, they seek obedience. For Noah, it was building the ark. For Abraham, it was what we find here, to circumcise the males in his household, and to be circumcised himself in accordance with the word of the Lord. Now, as we have seen in the text itself, we are told that Abraham obeyed immediately, that day. As we reflected, this terminology brings us back to the flood and how it rained that very day Noah entered into the ark. Thus, this moment of obedience is reminding us of something drastic occurring in the world. And that is how God's people have begun to exist. It all stems from faith in God and therefore obedience because of that faith. It is amazing to consider how something as simple as following the word of the Lord can have such consequences. Indeed, when we consider something like circumcision, we probably do not think that an event like that would have such drastic and incredible results. Something as simple as being faithful to God through obedience would have such an impact. Yet this is exactly what we find throughout history. When we are most faithful in our obedience to God, it is then when things occur. We change the world not by being the most suave, nor by being able to speak the best, or being the best chic or intelligent, No, we change the world through faithfulness to God 
and what he has called of each of us. Very often we can think of Abraham, we can think of Noah, and we can think they were called to be obedient in ways that you and I will never be called to. In some sense, that's right. None of us likely will have to build an ark, maybe in Oakland, as part of the covenant. Nor are any of us called to become a great nation the way Abraham was called. But that doesn't mean that our obedience means any less to God or is any less significant. Because it is when we are faithful to God through obedience to him that we challenge the order of the world. By being faithful and obedient to him in our lives on a daily basis will cause us to stand in contrast with the world around us. In its immorality, its injustice, in its sin, in its darkness apart from Christ. But when we walk in step with the Spirit, when we live according to the law of Christ, when we are obedient to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength, and when we love our neighbors as ourselves, it is then that the world is undone by our obedience. Now there is something to dispel there, isn't it? That is, obedience does not necessarily mean a long and happy life. Abraham, he was blessed by God. And that blessing did include a long and happy life. Yet when we think of someone like Noah, his obedience led to a long storm. A season of wondering if the world would ever come again. For that is the truth of it. Obedience to God does not focus on a reward. Obedience to God focuses on glorifying the God who is there, who has made himself known. The obedience of men like Abraham, like Noah, remind us that God is worthy of obedience. In other words, we need to recognize that obedience itself is part of the reward because it glorifies God. My hope for each of us in this reflection of Abraham's obedience is that we would learn not to delay in our obedience. It can often be the case that God calls us to himself and we say, not yet, not yet. Instead of saying, not yet, let us learn from Abraham to simply do. Say, now, I will. To simply obey and to do so without any delay in that obedience. Instead, like Abraham, let's start today to seek obedience to God. To begin today living for him in all manners of this life. To reject the belief that we only serve him on Sunday. But instead we devote every day, every minute of our lives to glorifying our Father in heaven. Because that is what he asks of us to do. Because that is how we each have been called to be obedient to him in our faithfulness to him. Just as those before us were called in their faithfulness. Alright, so another element of today's text that we see is the fact that our God is a sovereign God. I admit this is going to be interesting. I didn't know how to write this. I don't know if this makes sense. It might make sense. I don't know. And, and anyway, and being sovereign, this means that he is Lord of all the cosmos. Um, God, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. His will is supreme above all others, and his strength, power, and knowledge, they have no bounds. As such, he is entirely able to fulfill every one of his promises and fulfill every single covenant he declares between himself, humanity, and even the world, as we saw with Noah. Because of this, our God is to be trusted with everything he has promised because we know that our God is completely able. He is, as we saw last week, truly El Shaddai. He is a God who is sufficient in and of himself to do all that is within his will. But that also means that our God is to be trusted in all else, not only in his promises, but also in the course of human history. Very often we recognize how God allows things to happen without us understanding why. 
A good example in today's text is Ishmael versus Isaac. Why is the covenant with Isaac and not with Ishmael? Ultimately, we do not know exactly the reason behind it, other than that God simply has a plan. And that plan has a main goal, and that goal is his glory. Now, some might think that sounds somewhat egotistical of God. Quite a big ego. How can his glory be the main goal? Well, the reason why we can say that with enthusiasm rather than dread is because we know God. Our God is a good God, and his glory means good things for the world. Because he is a just, loving, moral, and in all the things which this world is in desperate need of, God is. Thus, when God chooses an individual out of a multitude, like he did with Abraham, or when he chooses one child over another, we can be sure that there is a particular reason for it, that is, his glory. That through these choices, he is bringing about the most possible good, because that is what glorifies him, good. Unfortunately, one of the biggest problems we have is human freedom. In our freedom, we do what is evil. We see this thus far in Genesis with Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the generations of Noah, um, the Tower of Babel, technically, even Abraham himself when it comes to his wife Sarah in Egypt. God has given us enough freedom with our wills to disobey, to cause pain, or to even do what is right and good. Now, how does this freedom relate to the promises and covenants God gives? Does this mean that we can inhibit the will of God? Can we inhibit his covenants? I would argue no. Because as it is, God knows what we choose before we choose it. He knows also what we will not choose. Because in order to know true facts are, it is necessary for us to know what are false facts. By definition. Thus, by knowing what we will do, he can guide history by knowing what our responses will be to certain events. Because of this, God is a sovereign God, and we are responsible with the moral freedom which has been given to us. Our moral freedom does not impinge on God's freedom, nor does it change what will occur. Instead, God uses our freedom to bring about the events which only we would respond to in our particular circumstances. Why then does God choose certain individuals? Because he knows them, and he knows the circumstances around them, and he knows what we will do in those circumstances. Thus, Isaac is chosen for that particular reason. Does this mean that Isaac has done anything as of yet? No. God chooses him before Isaac has even done anything. He hasn't even born yet. Prior to his birth, he still chose Isaac. Now, does this mean that because God has a plan and he is sovereign, that we should just step back and do nothing? By no means, as Paul would say. In fact, God allows us to partake of his glory, to partake of the work that he has here in the world. And as such, it should stir our hearts to realize that from the beginning of the universe, he knew you and he knew us and he knows all these things and that we have a purpose to live for him every day. It means that we are able to be used by God in marvelous ways by our own personal identities. A week or two ago, Mike read from, I think it's 2 Corinthians 4-7. In that passage, Paul tells us that we are jars of clay, we are vessels. In most cases, a jar of clay doesn't really matter. The vessel doesn't matter. It is what's in the vessel that matters. As it is, we have God inside of us. We have the Spirit of God who walks with us, guiding our hearts further into the love of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. He does all this work. 
He accomplishes all this in us, and we are simply called to be faithful to that with our wills. So do not be dismayed over the sovereignty of God. Instead, when we see God making choices that have serious ramifications for humanity, we should not doubt but trust that God is fully aware of the circumstances and all that that entails. Only he is omniscient, that is, all-knowing. He alone is fully aware of the circumstances. Likewise, he alone is El Shaddai, who is sufficient to bring about everything to its fulfillment. Trust in him, then. He is able, he will do it. Trust in him when circumstances do not go according to plan. Just like Abraham, who believed Ishmael was the promised son, the plan seemed to be ruined in a way. Thirteen years he was with Ishmael with no other child. But God has better plans than we. He understands and knows more than we can and more than we are able. Trust in him that whatever the circumstances in our, are, are in your life, he is bringing it for a reason, and that's for his glory, which again we know is good. Find peace in knowing this God. Find peace in knowing his great power. It is a fearful thing to stand before God because he is so powerful. Yet through Jesus, we are able to be called his children and play among his robes. Our God is great, and our God is for us through Jesus. His purposes, we will find in the end, have been leading us further into his loving arms, even when we do not understand it at the time, and even if it is painful. All right, final note that I would like to give is that there is a common misconception about the Bible. That is, it's all boldface, patriarchal, and that women are meaningless, and they have no purpose other than to serve men. While I appreciate the candor, the truth is scriptures give a lot more credit to women than other ancient texts. Likewise, they promise more to women than other ancient texts or all ancient texts. In fact, we have already seen this in two cases. The first was with Hagar, and the second is now with Sarah. Indeed, both individuals are promised progeny, they are promised offspring, they are promised many of the same promises as Abraham himself. So often we can think of Abraham, but the truth is the women in his life are also blessed and receive promises in their own rights. This reminds us of something. It is 100% true that men and women are different. Thank goodness. Women are especially like, yes, men are stupid. Maybe, I don't know. Betsy, stop laughing so hard. Yes, we are different. We have been called in different ways to serve God. Neither is better or higher than the other. But the point is, regardless, men and women are still creating an image of God, therefore intrinsically have dignity, sanctity, and worth. Men are not above women. Women are not above men. Both are esteemed, both valuable, both significant. Both are needed in their own rights according to what God has for them. So it should be of no surprise for us to read how Sarah was blessed and received her own part of the covenant. That it would be through her the promised child would finally come. That through her there would be kings and rulers and great individuals of great renown. Indeed, from her eventually comes Christ himself, the king. Now this is 
That's the first thing to consider. Women, though different from men and called to different things, are not inferior nor have any less purpose or worth. Through Christ, they are daughters of God Most High. And it is our responsibility to treat each of our women as such. They should be respected, loved, and cherished for who they are in their personhood and their identity. God made them for a purpose. And it's a wonderful purpose. Now, something further to consider is this. And this is a more broad topic. Is that Sarah... She made a major mistake previously, didn't she? Um, just as Abraham had made a mistake previously in Egypt, yes, she made a big mistake by deciding to bring about the blessing promised to Abraham through human means. Yes, she, that led to severe consequences for everybody. Yes, she treated Hagar harshly. Yes, she blamed Abraham for the whole fiasco. Yes, she made mistakes. However, this does not disqualify her from the blessing. Indeed, what we find is that God is going to work miraculously through this woman to bring a child into the world, an event which no one at the time thought possible, God, he was going to do it through her. You know who Sarah then reminds me of? She reminds me of myself. She reminds me of you. She reminds me of so many individuals who have made mistakes, who feel that the blessing isn't for them, who have failed. But you know what? God doesn't let our failures get in his way. He still brings about his promises despite our failures and despite what we manage to very often mess up. So I want you to take that yoke off your shoulders, if that's you. Whatever your circumstances, if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are a child of God. Sarah is an example of one who messes up, but the blessing still comes. Remind yourself of this. Not so that you would purposefully then mess up, but that you would know the love, the grace, and the mercy of God. He is a wonderful God, and he gives despite our failures. Indeed, he gave despite our sins by giving us his son, Jesus Christ. I mean, all I can wonder is how wonderful is our God. He is truly marvelous. All right. So, um... In all of this, I do think that the gospel can be seen. Again, at this moment in time, this is a severe, serious moment in which the people of God are finally brought forth. That after all this time, we've never had a clear definition. Who are the people of God? We've had individuals, but never a people group. Now is the case. And it's through Abraham that the covenant is made. Um, And so in that sense, we do have an origin story, don't we? We have an origin story of a people. A people who are gods. A people who belong to him. But we also have the origin story of Christ. Because through one of the people will come another, and then eventually Jesus himself, through this people group. And it's a wonderful thing to consider. And I think also, when we consider the broader scope of human origins and how we are created in the image of God, we see both for men and women here in this passage that men and women are both intrinsically valuable. That we have dignity, sanctity, and worth to life. Now, in this passage, we don't necessarily get any problems of the fall, except that the covenant has to come about to begin with. And the only reason why a covenant like this would have to come about was because we did fall. Um, So it's a bit ironic in that sense. But the truth is we have fallen. The truth is we do need God to fulfill his covenants with us, because we can't fulfill our covenants with him. No matter how good we may be, we'll still fail. 
we're still like Sarah in the end when we try our own human means. And every time that we try our own human means, it fails in misery. The Tower of Babel, they tried their own human means to get to heaven. It did not work. In the generation of Noah, they tried to get power through spending some considerable time with fallen angels. Didn't work. Adam and Eve tried to gain knowledge, tried to gain their own kind of power through taking of the fruit. It doesn't work. Obedience works. Faithfulness works. But it's because we're unfaithful and we're not obedient that we deserve judgment, just as the people in the Tower of Babel, just as the people in Noah's generation, just as Adam and Eve. Now the question is, how do we alleviate that? Well, Noah, he alleviated that by having faith. Abraham, he alleviated that, that sense of unrighteousness, by having faith. The same is no different for us. The difference is, though, is that God, he has given us Jesus. That by faith in him, we would be saved. By faith in his life, death, and resurrection, we would be sanctified. We would be redeemed. And that ultimately, we would know the truth of the gospel, which is that God has done something miraculous. And so that's how redemption comes, and that's how it's fixed, when we have faith and we're obedient. And it's a wonderful obedience. It's not slavery. It's choice. Um, And all this leads somewhere, and that's to glory. We're beginning to see the glory of God in each of our lives when we seek obedience to him. Eventually, we're going to be bathed in glory. We're going to live in glory. You know those moments when it feels like God is just so present and you're so happy and it's just, you think you could burst. Imagine being like that forever. That's where we're getting. Let's look forward to that. And let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have promised through the covenants and what you have shown us through the scriptures. And we ask right now that we would seek faithfulness to you. That we would seek to be obedient children who love you and desire to honor you, to glorify you with all of our lives. And Lord, we also ask that we would remember the covenant that you made with Abraham, and how ultimately it is fulfilled through Jesus, and how ultimately, if we are in Christ, we are your children, and the covenant blessings belong to us as well. We ask that you would continue to bless each and every one of us, that you would continue to transform our minds, our hearts, our bodies, our souls, into vessels of glory for you. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final.